Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a podcast about the rulers of the ancient Roman Empire. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me, as always, is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, a senior lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. This is episode LXIV, Q&A III. That's right, it's that time of the year again where we ask you for questions, you ask us questions, we listen, we answer the questions. So without further ado, I'm going to throw to myself. Here's Matt Smith. I guess the disclaimer to start a Q&A episode is, uh, is thank you everyone for your generous and extensive questions and we liked quite a lot of them but could not cover everything. We can't even cover everything that we did like. Um, some of them are quite extensive and you know there would be a lot involved to answer them and we've written them down on a hypothetical notepad somewhere as something that we might want to come back to later and we've now curated a, a list of questions here which we're going to go through. Rhiannon, any preliminary thoughts before we wade into the questions? Some of them are very deep and I'm going to have to think hard but let's start. <laughs> <laughs> This question is from a listener who sent it in herself, so we'll hear from her. Hi, this is Heather Wood, and I live in Longmont, Colorado. With the recent find of Roman coins in a Japanese castle, I started to wonder what kind of relationship the Roman Empire had with the great empires of China and India to the east. Obviously, Alexander made it all the way to India, but how much did they really know about this gigantic empire? Thanks so much. I love the podcast. Bye. So how much did the Romans know about the Far East? They knew a little bit, and most of that came through trade. Now, if you've been following the podcast, you know that Trajan got to the biggest extent of the Roman Empire. And so the furthest they knew in terms of direct contact through their provinces Mm was in the Middle East through Syria. And of course, they knew a lot about Parthia as one of their main enemies. They knew Alexander had got as far as India, as Heather mentioned in the question. Now, when they say India, sorry, is India, India? Yeah, it's it's more the northwest corner of India right, that so they really know about. Off and, in that vague um, direction slash Bactria, area. Bactria, yeah. as it was called. Yeah. They didn't know about the Indian subcontinent, as we would call it, mm. which is, you know, sort of sticks down into the Indian Ocean. Yes. They couldn't have drawn you a map of that. Mm. But they certainly, they exoticized India, as they did with a lot of the East. And in some ways, that's where we in the West still get that idea of exoticizing the East. And they knew about China and they gave it a name and they called the Chinese the Seres, S-E-R-E-S. Although that's a bit of a vague term that really means everything beyond Scythia. Right. Scythia is kind of Western Russia, Eastern Europe. Yeah. uh, And Scythia is already sort of a place of the imagination. They think cannibals live there, wild peoples, nomads. Yeah. So beyond that is quite vague in their imagination. So considering that um, they thought of of Britain being across the ocean, it doesn't really surprise me that they would have no real concept of it, but they they would have gotten some trade goods coming from person to person to person to person to the Roman Empire. Exactly. And silk is the famous substance that comes from the east, of course, along the Silk Road. And and this is one of the places that they get silk from. Yeah. Can I do the Pliny? Yeah. Because that's about materials. Yeah, Pliny me. The elder Pliny who often comes up in our discussions, and he should, um, who wrote that encyclopedic work and was killed by Vesuvius exploding in 79. 
He wrote that the Chinese are, and I quote directly here, famous for the woolen substance obtained from their forests. Now, scholars think that's cotton, not silk, although he goes on to describe a process that looks more like silk. So he seems to be perhaps a little confused. And then he actually describes the Chinese, how he thinks he can fathom any kind of knowledge of the character of the Chinese Mm. is quite beyond me. But what he says is the Chinese, though mild in character, yet resemble wild animals in that they also shun the company of the remainder of mankind and wait for trade to come to them. Again, he doesn't really know much about the Scythians. He's one of the people who claims that they're cannibals. So we have to take his knowledge of the Chinese with a pinch of salt. Given that one of the ways we know that the Romans had some kind of contact with the Far East is through trade, his description of them as just waiting for people to come to them seems quite counterintuitive. Mm. And it may be that that's an explanation which draws more on, I don't know much about them, therefore they must be people who keep to themselves. Yeah. So it might say more about Pliny and the Romans than it does about the Chinese. That's kind of the extent of what he says about them, and he's one of our main geographers and encyclopedists. Slightly mean O'Reilly as well. Uh, yeah, it, anyway. does, it does seem a little bit racist. Look, he's um, 2,000 but, years ago. I can't yeah. put current ideals on plenty. Well, I guess not. Off you go. Um, so <laughs> the other kind of thing that I found reference to is that uh, if you look at certain Chinese records, there's Roman envoy coming, and they believe it was during the time of the reign of Marcus Aurelius. More vagueness than certainty involved in that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to look at it, of course, from the other perspective. Mm. And China, we've probably got more chance of getting that information in a way than we do for a lot of the places the Romans conquered in in Europe, where we're often bemoaning the fact that, you know, we have nothing written by the Gauls from their point of view. Nevertheless, it is still quite hard to get a handle on exactly what that refers to. Thanks to Heather Wood in Longmont, Colorado for that question. Shout out to Colorado. Next question comes from Stefan Defoe, I'm guessing there. Do you reckon that's how it's pronounced? Um, it's from Belgium, and my knowledge of how you pronounce anything in okay. Flemish is not good. Hello, Stefan. Thanks for your question. His question's on Roman citizen and slavery. At what point does someone who is conquered become a slave? Were they second-class citizens? They were probably a bit lower than second-class citizens, Uh, did Roman soldiers get citizenship for service? There's a few questions wrapped up in that. If you were conquered, then yes, you became a slave if the commander decided that. Mm. At the end of a battle won by the Romans, the commander will decide whether the town that's being conquered, say, has made appropriate contrition Mm. for their bad act of actually opposing the Romans. So is there enough money to raid? Yeah, I mean, they can take the money and still enslave all the people. Really, it depends on which way they want to go with that. Now, the worst case scenario is they kill everybody. Usually it will be killing the men. And that's if they feel that these people are still a risk. The second bad case is you enslave everybody. And the third possibility is that you leave them there to function as a community. Now, the Romans defeated a lot of peoples, Mm. but they had provinces with native peoples still carrying on their everyday business. So they obviously didn't enslave everybody. And in fact, at a certain point in the empire, most slaves turn out to be children of other slaves. So they're not really so much enslaving from other parts of the world. I've got an interesting quote from Julius Caesar where he tells you specifically if he enslaves 
a group of people after he's won a battle. So in the Gallic War, uh, book 316, he's defeated a group called the Veneti, who are not from Venice. They're from northwest Gaul. And he puts the Senate to the sword, their local council, whatever they are, to the sword. So he kills a certain group of them, the ones he feels have really acted against him badly. The rest of the men are sold as slaves. Now, he depicts this as a harsh punishment from him because the Veneti have mistreated Roman diplomats. So they have to be made into an example. Right. So that implies he doesn't normally do that. Mm, that mm. he once he feels he's got them into line, that's fine. He moves on. All right. And as far as the the second part of Stefan's question, did Roman soldiers get citizenship for their service? Generally, that was a thing. Yeah. It depends when you're talking about. Mm. It changes over time. So early on, you can only be in the army if you're a Roman citizen and you only have a certain amount of property. Yeah. But 100 BCE, that changes and they enroll the mob, i.e. people without property, still got to be Roman citizens. But really in the imperial period, it starts to change a lot because they've got so many mercenaries. Mm. So really the people fighting in the army who aren't Roman citizens are classed as mercenaries. And that is one of the routes into, say, being settled as veterans then you'll also have Roman citizenship associated with that. So yes, in a way, mm. but technically a Roman would say, you're not in the army if you're not a Roman citizen. Okay. All right. You're a mercenary. All mm. right. Thanks to Stefan. Shout out to Belgium for that question. Next question comes from, and apologies for butchering your name, Sihan Khan Ioannis from Frankfurt, Germany. Obviously paraphrasing here, is it accurate that Romans always wear red as commonly depicted? It's pretty unlikely because red was expensive. It is still commonly depicted, but I get the impression that's mostly from Renaissance medieval era paintings. You do see it on clothing in mosaics, mm. so it certainly was worn. You could say, well, that's a depiction and maybe it's him in his Sunday best for the mosaic, I suppose. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, we know that they did have red and they could use it. But if you were very, very poor, you probably couldn't afford it. So that's the case of, of red. And where would they have got the red dyes from? Most of their dyes came from plants and from animals, especially sea animals. But red wasn't the most expensive dye. That was definitely purple. Yeah. And that's why we talk about purple as, you know, the imperial color. The color of royalty, yeah, mm, because only because, they can afford it. Exactly. Yeah. And it was always associated with higher class, with higher status in Rome. So, for example, you were only allowed to wear uh, a tunic with a red stripe down it if you were either an equestrian or a senator. Mm. And then there are different colors that you can have on your toga to show status. If you were a magistrate of some sort, you can have a purple border on your toga. Right, right. So why was, why was purple so expensive? Purple was expensive because it came from a very specific area in, uh, around modern Lebanon. And it came from a particular fish, which the Romans imaginatively called the purple. Pliny, who tells us a lot about that, we could just run this whole podcast on Pliny, couldn't we? The Elder Pliny tells us a lot about this purple fish in his book on sea creatures, which is book nine. He tells us the total amount of dye stuffs, i.e. purple, required for a thousand pounds of fleece is 200 pounds of whelk and 111 pounds of sea purple. And that produces, as he says, a remarkable amethyst colour. Mm. 
And if you're going to use Tyrian purple, which is the best, that's the stuff that comes from around modern Lebanon, then you have to go through a very specific process. So it's also quite time consuming. Right. You know, you have to soak it first and then you completely transform it with another dye. You use the whelk dye to finish it, I guess. Yeah. He says something quite nasty about it at the end. Its highest glory consists in the color of congealed blood, blackish at first glance, but gleaming when held up to the light. This is the origin of Homer's phrase, blood of purple hue. (laughs) Nice. Um, But he also talks about the whole process, which is that you use very little of the fish, so it's quite a wasteful process, and it has to be squeezed out of a part of its throat. It also sounds quite nasty. Yeah, Um, Yeah. So that's why it's expensive. It's rarity value. There you go, Suhan. I hope that answered part of your question and and other questions that you never had. Uh, Shout out to Frankfurt, Germany. Our next question comes from Naya, age nine. Hello, Naya. Thanks for listening. What kind of things did Romans celebrate? Did they celebrate people's birthdays? Did they celebrate New Year's? What other festivals did they traditionally celebrate? The Romans celebrated a lot. They had a lot of days, DAs in Latin, which were fasty which were where things were supposed to happen. And they had a lot of celebrations associated with gods and heroes, people that they had cults to. So some of these would be holidays, quite a number of holidays Mm. went on. And of course, perhaps one of the most famous ones is the one dedicated to Saturn, which is the Saturnalia. Uh, It's famous as the origin of our Christmas, even though it doesn't quite cover the, the 25th. And it wasn't just one day, it went on for a number of days. And it's my favorite festival because it's the one where supposedly they had reversals. So slaves were treated as masters and masters were treated as slaves for the day. If you were a slave, you got to be in charge. That sounds fraught with (laughs) dangers. Whether it actually happened in practice um, and was enforced is a a good question. Some people think of it as a kind of uh, a safety valve. So the slaves won't kind of explode with being exploited. Mm. That you let them do what they like that one day, and then you get back to normal where they're under the thumb. Um, so that was one of their main celebrations, and that is the winter festival. Uh, a lot of societies have them because winter is so hard in uh, cooler countries. You're bedding down and waiting for the spring to come when mm-hmm. things can liven up again. Yeah. Uh, but there were lots of celebrations associated with religion. As soon as you get military triumphs, and especially during the imperial period, things associated with the emperor, you will have celebrations, particularly in Rome, which are associated with your leaders. Yes. The triumph is Mm. the most important one of those, the day when a military leader comes and gets paraded around the city. Lots of celebrations associated with Augustus and his family, and then the emperors after that, and indeed their birthdays. Mm. So they will often become special holidays. And individuals celebrated their own birthdays too, yes. Yeah, and, and for these empire kind of festivals, it, it all gets tied up with the emperor needing to be generous and putting on games and those kind of activities. That was the way that yeah, was celebrated. exactly. It's as much about the emperor giving something to the people. The emperor's birthday isn't about him getting gifts. Yeah. It's about him making donations. It might be money, it might be food, it might be games, mm. as you say. Mm. All right. So thank you to Naya for that question. Our next question comes from Naya's sister, Niobe. Good classical name. <laughs> Uh, What kind of things did the Romans eat? Were there special festival foods? 
what they ate, I think would have been rank and disgusting. Yeah. You would not want to eat it. So like stuffed lamb's testicles and uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, sorry, I saw a documentary recently on this. <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah. It just sounds so awful. I yeah, have to laugh. It does. And uh, <laughs> tell us about garum. Well, garum is a fish sauce. Yeah. And it's uh, apparently very, very strong. That undersell. I think fish sauce undersells it. It's like yeah. fermented and distilled, yeah. and this was put on pretty much everything. It does seem to have been on everything. Yeah. Um, it's very strong. It, it may have acted as a preservative. You can make it. Yeah. Uh, there is a famous recipe book from the ancient Roman world by a man called Apicius, A-P-I-C-I-U-S, so you can make Roman recipes if you want and use garum. I've never used it because I don't eat fish. But I'm quite glad about that because it sounds awful. Uh, of course, as well as that, they're also famous for um, what you were suggesting. They're more elaborate foods. Mm. So foods that are in some way disguised. They've got something inside something else. Some of the information we get from Petronius, the advisor to Nero, mm. he wrote a novel that has a section that's at a dinner and it's it's kind of a ridiculous dinner. It is meant to be ridiculous even in Roman terms, but they have lots of food that's in disguise. So they have at one point they have eggs and they crack them and little birds fly out. Yeah. And they have this the zodiac dish as it's called, where there are twelve different foodstuffs, each one meant to represent a sign of the zodiac. And then there's a pig that apparently hasn't been gutted and when the chef cuts it open in front of them, all of these sausages and meats fall out on the floor. It's a lot of meat fest, mm. um, which probably was not the case for ordinary Romans, of course. I was about to say, when you when you get down to it, it's uh, it's breads, it's... Yeah, it's grains. They eat a lot of grains. Wine, it's, you know, cooked meats, it's simple fare. Yeah, and, and meat was probably, for ordinary people, poorer people, something special that they got after... Mm. This actually relates to the previous question, in a way. After they'd sacrificed to the gods on a, a special day. The unfortunate little addendum to this that we should say is that for much of the ancient world they were probably undernourished most of the time ordinary people mm. um yeah, so I believe that. yeah you know that it was quite rare to be well fed mm. and it was one of the benefits of the empire the mm. emperor would at least agree to feed the people of rome in times of famine two small points about this that i that i've found during my, my reading is that uh, a, a few years ago they found a butchered giraffe's leg in it might have been Herculaneum, but down around Pompeii. So they think that that was brought across to be in an animal pit or a zoo show or whatever, and it dies. And what do you do with good meat that's died? You eat a giraffe. Yeah. So, you know, somewhere there was a hunk of giraffe there that had been eaten and more exotic food might crop up every now and then, but meat is meat, I suppose. Yeah, that sounds very unusual because, yeah. of course, it would be very expensive. And that is the only circumstance I can think whereby they'd have been eating giraffe rather than putting it on show in an arena. Thank you, Niobe, for that question. Our next question comes from Christopher Taylor, mayor of the city of Ann Arbor in Michigan. Shout out to Mr. Mayor. He says that there were press reports a few years ago identifying the location of Caesar's death and not just where he died, which was the theatre of Pompey, well but remembered. actually the site where he was stabbed. He asks if we believe that this is accurate. So I did some Googling and I sent a few emails and pretty much what happens, and this is the problem with modern media, is that somebody will send out a media release and the media will just go, yep, that sounds sexy. People will click on that. Let's all publish that and use the same quotes and use the same photo. And therefore, 
the interpretation from that is, yes, the site has been found. Here's exactly where Caesar was stabbed. There's a bit of brickwork, which we think shows a commemoration of that point, and that is the proof that they were working with. I sent a few tweets to Barry Strauss, who's a historian who wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Death of Caesar, and he said that it's one theory that these stones commemorate where Caesar was actually stabbed, but it needs to be independently verified and there's more research that needs to go into it. The problem with these news stories is media picks it up, they run with it, they go, yep, this is where he was stabbed, and of course it's never followed up on. It just goes into the black hole of web bait clicks. Yeah, it's a, it's a problem of, of course, people desperately want to know the spot of Caesar's assassination. We have a little bit of information about what happened to that spot, so we're kind of looking for that. So there's always the danger of if you're looking for it, you'll kind of make the archaeology fit the fact you already know that there was some kind of shrine put up to Caesar there. But you're quite right, given that there apparently hasn't been any follow-up on it, that nobody's then gone on to, to publish it and to to work on it further suggests that people haven't taken it up. It hasn't been taken up as a general theory. Mm. All right, so thanks to uh, Barry Strauss for humouring me with those uh, tweets there, and uh, shout-out to Christopher Taylor. Thanks very much for your question. Hope Ann Arbor is going well under your benevolent rule. <laughs> Next question we've got is from Dylan Ritchie in Louisiana. This might be one of the audio questions. It is. Yeah. Hi, guys. This is Dylan from Louisiana in the United States. My question is, who is your favorite Roman emperor and why? Rhiannon, who are you most excited to eventually cover on this podcast? Thank you guys so much for all you do. And furthermore, Carthage must be destroyed. There you go. Nice, easy curveball there, Rhiannon. <laughs> I love them all in different ways. Oh. <laughs> um, well, obviously, it's Hadrian, partly because of the beautiful art. So Hadrian and Sabina and Antinous mm. everywhere looking gorgeous with skin that's just so smooth and lovely and he built huge numbers of buildings you really shouldn't try to psychoanalyze or fix the character of an emperor but he does seem to me to have been a very cosmopolitan emperor yeah. i like that about him I mean, we know he did he did all the traveling he was very interested in greek culture he didn't care that there was the possibility that that would reflect badly on him among some more conservative romans which of course is what happened in the biography of hadrian they took against him because of his love of greece I shouldn't like him so much because, of course, he came to Britain and built a big wall to hammer us with. But then that wall being there is kind of a fascinating uh, part of Roman history in Britain. Mm. I think that he's very interesting because he is supposedly one of the good emperors of Rome. But there's slight feeling of unease about him amongst the Romans. The texts aren't entirely happy with his perspective on the world. The second part to his question was, uh, who are you most looking forward to in covering in this podcast? Well, Commodus is coming up soon. Yeah. And there's so much good to say about Commodus because he's been so thoroughly demonized. He's a, a figure sort of at a, a turning point, I think, for Rome too, towards the end of the second century. I'm looking forward to getting my teeth into him. Okay. Thanks very much to Dylan Ritchie. Shout out to Louisiana for that question. Our next one is uh, also an audio question. Hi, Matt and Rhiannon. My name's Dave, living in Singapore, originally from Melbourne and La Trobe University alumni. And my question and my interest is to understand more about the original source material, particularly the writings of some of the historians from, the, from antiquity and how that has actually survived since that time, what format it's in now, 
And if I wanted to use that for studies or use it as reference material for a podcast, how I'd go about actually looking at that material. Thanks very much. Okay, this is a good question. There's plenty we could say about this, but I'll try to be brief. Uh, Most of our ancient sources have survived through being copied. Sometimes we've actually got a papyrus from the ancient world. They only survive in very dry places. Mm. So Egypt is the main source for them, and there's still the potential for more to be found. Uh, The other famous place that they're found is the Villa of the Papyri in Herculaneum. They've survived because they were buried for a very long time. Mm. Uh, So the problem is things decay, paper decays. So it has to be copied out and copied out. And sometimes this has happened from early on. Usually, though, a manuscript has turned up in the 8th, the 9th, the 10th century, possibly even later. And that becomes the one from which all other texts are drawn. So, for example, we've talked a lot about Suetonius in this podcast. The earliest text that we know of of Suetonius comes from around 900 CE. So that's a big gap from Suetonius. Mm. And it's riddled with problems. The beginning is missing. So we've lost the beginning of Julius Caesar's life. There are bits missing and errors all over it. But that's the first one we've got. And then about 200 manuscripts survive that are obviously copied from that and try, try to fill in some of the gaps. Oh, right. So, so they could be making up details as they go along. Errors can be transcribed. Uh, yeah, and also people try and correct for things that are missing or clearly wrong. Yeah. So that makes the whole process of trying to read and interpret a text really interesting or hard <laughs> because, you know, you can have different interpretations of what you might fill in there or what might have gone wrong there, what a, a scribe might have interpolated, might have shoved in. This usually happened in the West in the context of monks copying things out, yeah. you know, by a candle easy things to go wrong. Although previously a lot of texts had been maintained, had been kept in the Arab world, and that's how they survived at all. So the Byzantine emperors held on to a lot of texts and... Yeah, but also in um, non-Christian parts of the Middle East, they they saw value in classical texts. So we often have to thank them for survival. But what that means is we can't get back the beginning of Suetonius's Life of Caesar unless we find an earlier text. Um, Caesar's Gallic Wars that we've talked about a bit in this podcast is the earliest one is a little bit later in the 900s. That's fairly typical. Mm. So we always have a big gap and we have to be a bit worried about that. If we do find a text as a papyrus, it's often fragmentary. So that causes its own problems because sometimes you will read texts and they've just got half a line missing, say a poem. It'll just have the last word of the line. This is particularly true of, say, a poet like Sappho. We only have one poem that isn't a fragment of Mm. all of hers. It's very, very sad. Sometimes you'll see half a line, a word at the end of the line, Mm. a word at the end of the next line. Try and make a poem out of that, although the fragment itself can be quite beautiful. Yeah. And I guess the other problem is uh, even if you find a scroll, what constitutes a book would have been over a number of scrolls. So you might just have a, a fraction of a book. This is what's happened with uh, someone like Tacitus, where we've lost the middle of the annals and the whole end of the histories. They just disappeared at some point and nobody was able to copy them out anymore. Mm. But we do have better news in terms of access now 
because uh, you can access most of these texts on the internet. Mm. They're much more freely available these days because they're old they're and they're not in copyright. <laughs> and of course, most of us will want English translations, but there are older translations too. So yeah. if you're prepared to read something that's 50, 75 years old and, and maybe jiggle the English around a bit, then you can get hold of nearly all of this. And for Roman history and culture, I guess the best single site to go to is Lacus Curtius, mm. uh, which is run by Bill Thayer, and he keeps adding more and more texts on Roman history. So I think the whole of Dio Cassius is there. The other one to look at is Perseus, which has usually the original language and a translation, sometimes commentaries too. And the Lerb texts, of course, mm. which if you're connected to a university library, you might be able to access online. Mm. Otherwise, you can just buy them secondhand when you find them like the rest of us do. <laughs> so they're everywhere. You yeah. can get them. No excuses for not reading. <laughs> Thanks to David Fitzgerald for that question. So this is from Benjamin Waters in Houston, Texas. Dr. Evans really comes across as having an incredible amount of detail at her fingertips. Does she have to do a lot of research on each topic before the podcast, or is she just fluent with the material? I can tell you guys, she is fluent. And Matt's questions really seem to cover each topic well. Are these as organic as they seem, or do you guys have a script ahead of time? Um, I do a lot of research beforehand and, and you know, make notes and say to Rhiannon, right, this is the sort of things we can cover. Here's some a few links. Maybe this quote would be good. Here's some Pliny. Go and read some Pliny. And then Rhiannon takes it and runs with it. So I do prep, and then Rhiannon also does prep before the podcast. We don't script it, though, do we? We don't script it. It's just it would sound well, more fluid than this. <laughs> it's just well edited. <laughs> <laughs> I, of course I can't claim to know to have Suetonius in my head, yeah. although it's getting close. No, I do actually remember one of my undergraduate tutors saying to me, you don't need to know everything, you need to know where to find it. Oh, that's that's a... what an undergraduate education <laughs> should teach you. That kind of cuts down on a lot of the work, I suppose, yeah. which is being able to think, oh, I know that Caligula said something like that. I think it's in Dio. I can go find it and then I can quote it directly. Yeah. So you need a certain base knowledge. But of course, you need to go look at the text. To, yeah. to, and, you know, we sometimes have an iPad around us so we can find the quote quickly. I've brought the, the elder Pliny in, in with me today. He's yeah. usually by my side. So we do have some texts here, but we generally talk off the cuff, really, yeah. with, with some information with us. This question is from Lee Byung-Kon in South Korea. How did the emperors perceive themselves as emperors in comparison with other kings and emperors from other regions? So I guess this is, uh, this is asking, did they have a superiority complex? Did they, <laughs> they think themselves senior above all other rulers? Well, this is an interesting question, and I think you'd have to say it changes over time. Mm. There's sort of two sides to this question. How did they see themselves? In a way, we can never know because we can't get inside their heads, but we can, we can interpret a certain amount. And what kind of image did they project with regard to whether they were a monarch? So, for example, with Augustus, the first emperor, he very much wants to project himself as being somebody who has brought Rome together, and therefore they need him, but he's not a monarch. Remember, he calls himself Princeps, the mm. first man, so that he's not being called a king because that's something that the Romans are allergic to. So he has to distance himself from that and he knows that it's probably the reason that Caesar was murdered. Mm. 
So there's sort of a gap between perhaps how they perceived themselves and how they wanted the people to perceive them. They want to perceive them as above all others, but not quite as kings. But then you've got divinity. So they... uh... So, yeah, only gods after they yeah, die is yeah, the rule. Yeah. And of course, somebody like Domitian is supposed to have broken that code and supposedly asked people to call him Lord and God. Mm. And that's a problem and the reason he gets murdered. So it changes over time and it changes in little ways, like Domitian, for example, building what is effectively a throne room and starting to raise himself physically above the people when he has delegations come to see him. And by the time you get way down the road in the fourth century to somebody like the Emperor Constantine, actually, if you go to Rome and look at the Arch of Constantine, you see him depicted as being much bigger than everyone around him. So there's a a relief sculpture with a row of people, Mm. and he's seated on a throne. But even though he's sat down, he's much bigger than everybody else, and he's kind of above them. So I think you can see that process becoming one where... He appears to be and perhaps thinks of himself as way above the ordinary people by that point. You can even see it actually on Trajan's column, Mm. where the emperor always looks a bit taller than the army around him. So it's quite a hard and deep question to answer. But I'd have to say that Roman emperors, and up until a very late period, are always, they're walking that tightrope between being nearly kings, nearly gods even, Mm. but they have to not quite be there. As opposed to, as the questioner asks, those Hellenistic kings, uh, kings in other parts of the Roman world. All right. So thanks to Lee Byung-Kon in South Korea for that question. Lastly, did you just want to spend a, a couple of minutes addressing where we're going to go with the podcast next? Okay. At the moment, we're covering the adoptive emperors, the Antonine emperors, and that's where we're going to. So we're covering Marcus Aurelius and Commodus, and that's the end of that dynasty. And after that, I won't be covering the emperors who come later. That's outside of my expertise. I can hear the keyboards clacking already. Uh, <laughs> maybe so. Um, yeah. But, you know, we, we do want to keep the podcast going. And I don't think that I should talk about third century emperors that I don't know much about. Yeah. So yeah. we will hopefully be able to bring people in to talk about some of those later emperors. Some of them are really key. And we will have uh, particular themes or perhaps particular blocks of history that we go and look at. There's a lot of Republican history that we haven't really touched on. And And there's just stuff that we've skipped along the way as well that we, or other things that we could have uh, covered more in depth. We could say a lot more about Julius Caesar. We could could talk about Julius Caesar forever. Yeah. We could talk about Mark Antony at some point. You know, Carthage has to be destroyed sooner or later, as people like to point out. (laughs) So there's a lot of Roman history that we can cover. But as far as moving forward with the emperors, if it does happen, that won't be happening with Rhiannon, which is fair enough. You can't know everything, Rhiannon. Not yet. (laughs) We're not going to hold that against you. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks, everyone, for your great questions, and uh, thanks for listening to the podcast. Thank you. That's Dr. Rhiannon Evans, a senior lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University, and you have been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in iTunes, tell a friend, tell the world, give it a rating, give it some love. You can like the Emperors of Rome Facebook page on Facebook, and you can follow both myself and Rhiannon Evans on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans, and I am at Nightlight Guy. In the next episode of Emperors of Rome, Antoninus Pius. But until then, I'm Matt Smith, Carthago de Linda Est, and thanks for listening.